The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is former Notre Dame star offensive lineman and CBS Sports analyst Aaron Taylor. We will talk about the best offensive lines in college football so far this season. Taylor is one of the organizers of the Joe Moore Award. It is named in honor of his former coach, Joe Moore, one of the late great offensive line coaches in all of college football. We'll also talk about Notre Dame and its college football playoffs chances, and we'll get into a little Alabama, LSU, and some SEC talk. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe at either of those platforms. And if so inclined, give us a good review. That helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage and away we go. I am joined this week by Aaron Taylor, the uh, great former offensive lineman for Notre Dame. You might know him better these days as uh, one of the voices of CBS Sports College Football. Does a lot of games. Aaron, thanks so much for doing us doing this, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, Ralph. How you been, my man? I'm good. You know, football season goes very fast. Co- nothing goes faster than the college football season. I mean that literally. Like, of all the major sports, like, it's really compact. And all of a sudden, you look up, and you're at the halfway point, and really almost a little bit beyond it. So it's been a fun season so far. And halfway, everybody sort of does their midseason reports, midseason All-America teams. Well, you're involved with one of the cool awards. It's, I think, this is the year four of the Joe Moore Award. Am I getting that right? Yep. Yeah, Joe Moore Award is named after the great, uh, late, great former offensive line coach for Notre Dame and Pitt. Um, Joe Moore, he coached Aaron at Notre Dame. It recognizes not the best offensive line man, but the best offensive line men, the best offensive line in the country. So it's given to a team and it's given to a group of offensive linemen. So we'll start there. We'll get into other stuff about Notre Dame. But I want to talk offensive line, Aaron, because that's the most fun thing about having you on is I get to talk about offensive line play. Who are who, who have been the best offensive lines in the country so far this year? Well, it's been an interesting year, Ralph. I, I think the committee and myself, and there are 13 of us, and uh, in total over 800 years of combined playing and coaching experience when you consider the legacy group and the other people that will end up voting on this uh, award about who earns it at the end of the year. Every year it seems like offensive line play that's good and physical, uh, consistent, filled with great technique, played with great effort, uh, and has a toughness element to it is harder and harder to find. But to your point, man, we're about halfway through this season and some teams really started to emerge that uh, kind of caught our eyes in alphabetical order. The midseason honor roll for 2018 are Alabama, Appalachian State, Army, B.C., Georgia, Kentucky, Memphis, Mississippi State, NC State, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Oregon, Texas, and Wisconsin. So, when we take into account the, the five to seven games that have been played by these 14 teams, you start to see some things that emerge and 
the offensive line position is kind of weird, man. It, it's we, we think of skilled positions. We think quarterbacks and wide receivers and running backs and DBs, but the offensive line really is the most skilled position on the team because <clears throat> we're the least athletic. All right, I admitted it. So because <laughs> of that lack of athleticism, we've got to be really refined in our technique, and oftentimes that doesn't start to emerge until the middle of the season. It, okay, a couple of things there. So I, what I love about the list is, again, it's not necessarily honoring just the best pro prospects, right? Because if you look at if any list that has Alabama and Army, is obviously an interesting list because Alabama's got about four or five guys who are going to end up playing in the NFL in some way, shape, or form, and Army probably doesn't. So what are the criteria being used to measure the offensive line play where you could have Army and Alabama both rating very highly? That's a great question, man, and I think it's something that makes our award unique. Uh, four years ago when I embarked on this journey to be able to memorialize Coach Moore, a man that meant so much to me and to so many other people, and sent 52 dudes in 18 seasons to the NFL. That's almost three per year at both Pitt and Notre Dame. It's unprecedented. It'll never happen again, and that just speaks to, to who he was. I pulled kind of that 800 years of, of coaching and playing experience, and I asked him a simple question. I said, guys, on the best offensive lines you either played on or coached, what were the top three criteria of those units? So I got back answers that were all over the place, and we started to distill and drill it down. There was some redundancy. There were some synonyms, obviously. But we came up with the following six. Toughness, effort, teamwork, consistency, technique, and finishing. Those were the elements that no matter what the style of offense, no matter what the era was, appeared to be the fundamental building blocks of the offensive line position. And given that this game is a game of blocking and tackling, that has transcended and, and stood the test of time. So those are the six criteria that we use, and that's how an Army, who's extremely physical but not nearly as gifted physically as an Alabama, can feel very good and hold its head high sitting next to the number one team in the country. Okay, I, I want to talk more about the award and some offensive line play and things like that. There's one thing in particular, because it's on my mind with Army, because I was just up in West Point a few weeks ago after they had the near upset against um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And sin- yeah, and since then, by the way, they blew out Buffalo. They, they crushed uh, San Jose State. It's another great year for the guys up at Army and Jeff, and Jeff Monken. They were, uh, complaining might, might not be the best word, but certainly they're not particularly pleased about a new rule that essentially tries to limit or curtail cut blocks, which is a big part of Army's offense and the, the way they run their option offense and how they're starting to have to try like a new technique where they aim a little higher and then slide down on players. What are your thoughts on sort of the new rule cut blocks and are they being unfair to some of these teams that use them a lot, like Army and Georgia Tech? Well, it's interesting and a great question, and I think that's kind of been the old age-old complaint that defense has always used was that the academies that are, are forced to use the triple option basically to stay competitive and have done so very well uh, over the century um, use cut blocking a lot. So this new rule basically limits where and how that can take place. And I'll take you back to your old student driver days where you had to have your hands on the steering wheel at 10 and 2. That basically is the angle with which a player must be coming forward to be able to cut block 
below the waist. It's become a smaller area where there's a five-yard allotment. Anything outside of that, it starts to become extremely difficult. So these offenses that are predicated about getting people on the ground so that they're smaller, undersized linemen and running backs can take advantage of it puts a lot of pressure on teams like Army. We saw it in our game last week, uh, Carter Blackburn and I, when we were calling the San Diego State Air Force game and that torrential downpour on the West Coast. See, we have inclement weather out there as well, I guess. <laughs> they called a chop block that uh, called back, uh, or an illegal block below the waist that called back a really nice game that Air Force had. You saw Troy Calhoun just be absolutely livid. So that's a long-winded answer to your simple question, but absolutely this is going to limit how effective the triple option teams are because it limits what it is they're allowed to do. But I still think given the nature of the offense, they're going to have a tremendous success to, to army is I think is a perfect example of, of how and why that is. Yeah. Well, you know, the good thing with army and here's, here's, here's good coaching, right? This is, this is the, the, the essence of good coaching. We may not like the rule, but the rule is the rule. So let's figure out how to teach a different technique that we can get a, a similar effect but a different technique. And again, what they're doing now is they're sort of they're raising the target, hitting sort of in the chest and then sliding down. Which may be harder, yeah. but nonetheless that's that's good that's good coaching, right? Just change the technique. You have to play within the rules whether you agree with them or like them or not. I mean, there's a lot of things about laws that, you know, I may not necessarily appreciate, but I have to abide by them or I pay the consequences. So these are extremely disciplined teams. Navy, uh, Air Force, and Army are always amongst the top ten and fewest penalized teams in the country. It certainly doesn't seem to have slowed Army and what they've been able to do offensively, although I will say Navy and Air Force are both having down years compared to where they've been in the past. But as I've seen it, and I've seen both of those teams live, I think it's as much of uh, not having as much physicality up front as we're traditionally used to seeing, and that's affecting some of their play. Also, some of the quarterback situations that each team has uniquely experienced has contributed to that. But, um, yeah, it makes it a little bit harder, but it's not going to be instantly where these things go away. I think the triple option teams in the academies are still going to have a tremendous amount of success, even though they got to work harder for it. Even though it's not a major part of most offenses the way it is with these triple option offenses as an offensive lineman back in your days being coached by coach Moore were there instances where you were taught to cut block absolutely yeah when you have a front door stretch play meaning a, a play that's a toss sweep or something and you've got to get up to the backside linebacker that may have an inside alignment so if you you know, kind of imagine me as a left guard with the center, and I've got to block a linebacker that's maybe lined up five yards deep, uh, and if I'm a left guard, a couple, you know, feet inside my right shoulder. Well, how in the world am I going to get my head across and stay between the defender and the ball carrier in that situation? A lot of times you would take a quick step, dip your left shoulder up underneath the defensive lineman, run at a flat angle, and at the very end throw at his ankles so that you can get him on the ground and the back can hopefully cut from behind you you also see it a lot on goal line situations where there's a ton of bodies in there and it's just not realistic to get movement when you've got a defensive player on each of your shoulders it's typically on backside cutoffs very rarely would you cut front side on a play unless it's a uh, a bootleg or something that requires you i had a cut on willie mcginnis in the super bowl when we did a, a boot left sprint nine option with uh, Brett Favre that he ended up scoring a touchdown on really jacked me, cracked my head and about broke my neck, but I was able to get my head on his knee. I didn't get him to the ground, but it delayed him enough 
to be able to allow Brett Favre to be able to break contain and get the touchdown. So for Lyman, it's critical because, again, we get out-athleted a lot. So the ability to be able to cut block a defender allows us to utilize what our skill set is, which is that we're big and tough, we're, we're good, and effective in short areas, but we can't be expected to run and get our head outside of defenders that are more athletic than us. Looking at the list of some of the teams that are on here with uh, with the Joe Moore Award being sort of recognized as uh, at, at, at midseason, was there any one that you sort of looked at and said, boy, I'm a little surprised. I didn't think that because the, the one that sort of jumps out at me, I, I know Texas has been having a lot of offensive line issues over the last couple of years, and they're playing pretty well. So that may be one I'll throw there out. Was there any other one out there that you sort of said, boy, they haven't been very good recently. That's a good turnaround for them. I'll tell you what, I think Oregon is really the unit that surprised mm-hmm. most of us this season. I mean, it is so clear what Mario Cristobal is doing with his unit out there and, and the way that they're coached. I mean, they are, are tone setters. So he kind of coaches the tackles. Alex Mirabal kind of coaches the inside guys. But they're as physical of a unit as there is in the country. And I think when we think of thinking Oregon Duck football, we think hurry up, no huddle spread. We think Chip Kelly. We think, you know, linemen turning their shoulders, just running sideways so that these really quick scat backs can, you know, get lateral and then put their foot in the ground and get north and south. But that is not the case at all. They're running gap schemes, which are like power and counter, and these big physical plays that take advantage of double teams on the play side. They're inside zone and combination blocks where the two adjacent offensive linemen work the down lineman and basically double team him up into the face, hopefully in lap of the linebacker. There is a physical of a unit in the country as, as we've seen. It started to emerge a little bit last year when Mario took over that job uh, and then became the interim coach, and we've really seen it explode. They've got a left tackle, Panay Sewell, who got banged up a little bit in that great win that they had a week ago against Washington. But he is a, a freshman, I think, that really embodies what this Oregon unit is trying to do. But it's crazy, man. Like, the more football changes, the more it stays the same, Ralph. At its essence, it's a game of blocking and tackling. And with as many changes as we've seen throughout the landscape of college football, especially the era that we're in now where, you know, defenders or receivers can run down the field basically uncontested, the targeting rules and all the different things that are making it easier for offenses. The one position that has never changed is the offensive line. Those same five guys line up in the same exact spot every single play, and the entire other, I guess it would be 17 players on the field, line up in different spots accordingly. (laughs) So it's the one staple and constant in the sport of football, and Oregon's doing a really good job of being physical at that position, and I think that caught a lot of us by surprise when we turned the tape on. Yeah, you uh, mentioned uh, Oregon, and uh, Shane Lemieux was a guy who made the AP's uh, midseason All-America team, and they got a bunch of guys. You're right, the freshman Sewell has been terrific, but Lemieux stood out to me only because Cole Kubelik, one of your buddies who works for ESPN and who's uh, one of the big contributors to the Joe Moore Award, pointed out Lemieux to me a couple of weeks ago because I usually, every week I try to get an offensive lineman of the week from Cole because Cole studies a lot of film, and I don't think he Ever sleeps, by the way. So I, I know I could always I could always tap into him for some good offensive line stuff. So he gives me an offensive lineman of the week, and Lemieux was one of them a few weeks back, and he made our uh, preseason All America team. Yeah, that's been a real theme for Oregon. This idea that Cristobal is really trying to make them a better line of scrimmage team, and he's done it. And I think what that's allowed is for Justin Herbert to be able to flourish and have that vertical passing game. And I mean, we all saw the game last week against Washington, some of the throws that he made, but 
it's not just what teams do. It's, it's how they do it. It's interesting, man. A couple of years ago, I set out to see if we could create a QBR for fat guys, if you could, <laughs> see if you could measure the relative efficiency of offensive line units using data. Data has come a, a huge way in, in football and the analytics and kind of the inside baseball and money ball, I think, kind of started that whole trend. The long and the short of it is you can't because data captures results. It doesn't capture process. The offensive line inherently is a position that is process-oriented. It doesn't just matter what you do. In many cases, it matters how you do it. So one of the things that we look at is how well the coaches trust their offensive line in big moments. I call them gotta-have-it situations, third and fourth and short, goal-to-go situations. How often are teams calling runs, and how often when those runs are called are they successful? Well, Oregon was a beautiful example of that in that game last week against Washington. And every big moment in that game, in second and eights, in some third and longs, that coaching staff dialed up runs, including the walk-off touchdown in overtime to Fredell. Oh, by the way, the guy that fumbled in the overtime loss mm-hmm. to Stanford gets redemption third and six from the goal, and they run a pass when they've got probably the number one overall pick at quarterback underneath center. Those things are the things that we notice on tape because context matters. He virtually walked in untouched. There were some great uh, dig outs and combination blocks and sliding off of the down lineman up to the linebacker. It was a thing of beauty. Great redemption for that loss they had against Stanford. And those are the things that the committee, Cole Kubelik, who's our chairman of the voting community, look for. Uh, on a week-to-week basis. Let me ask you, uh, and then we'll take a quick break and get into some other uh, other topics. Are you skeptical? Because you're right, metrics are a big deal, and we have a lot of grading systems now. Pro Football Focus, I think, does a really nice job of the college side trying to give grades to every single player, including the offensive lineman from week to week. But are you skeptical of some of the metrics and grading systems that are used on offensive linemen? Yeah, I, I think it, it's the most important position that's often the, the least understood. And I think without knowing scheme or what a player's asked to do in certain situations, without knowing the calls, it's really hard to know whether or not a guy gets a plus or a minus. Certainly you can look at you know how it looked and how his technique uh, came across, but there's often times a lineman will fall off at the last second and just nick a linebacker that allows – that's blitzing that allows a quarterback to step up. It looks awful on film, but it's probably a double plus because it's a good heads up play. So I think data and its evaluation of the position is getting better. I think offensive line is is clearly the position on the field. that's probably most difficult to evaluate because it's not just what the individual does. It's what he does in conjunction to the lineman, to the scheme, to the defensive front, to the situation. And without having an intimate knowledge of what the offense is, you can get a general sense of how a guy does, but you can't definitively slap a grade on a guy because you're making too many assumptions at that point. And that's, again, with 800-plus years of coaching and playing experience, we put on tape all the time. We'll call offensive line coaches and be like, hey, what happened in this situation? They'll explain it, and we go, that makes sense. We never thought of that. We didn't know that. I understand that now. That explains what happened earlier in the game in the second quarter. And those are the sort of things that I think go into that evaluation process. But what makes this position unique is that inherently 
the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. How they work in unison and conjunction is more important than how they perform individually, which is why the Joe Moore Award is the only college football award that acknowledges a group or a unit. We understand that inherently because we played and coached the position, and we're trying to do the best job we can of evaluating and acknowledging units that play the position at an extremely high level. All right, perfect plug, perfect time to take a little break. I am with Aaron Taylor, former Notre Dame offensive lineman, analyst for CBS Sports. We will be back in just a moment on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am with Aaron Taylor, former Notre Dame offensive lineman, former Green Bay Packers offensive lineman, former first-round draft pick. You were really good. Last time I was at Notre Dame, I'm standing next to your Lombardi or Outland now. I can't. Now I'm Trump. Lombardi. I was standing next to your Lombardi trophy. In fact, I took a picture of it and texted it to you and said, boy, you apparently were pretty good here. You didn't know that for such a schmuck I could play football. No, and listen, I'm old enough to remember you being really good and having a great career. Your career was a little short. Shorter than you probably would have liked it because of some injuries, but that's sort of, I don't know, that's sort of the name of the game, right? There's not a whole lot you can do about that. How are you holding up? I don't mean this to be, like, lighthearted, but it always interests me. How many surgeries have you had? I've had six knee surgeries, uh, including the two patella tendon rupture repairs that I had in year one and year two in the NFL. And to your point, yeah, my career was cut short based on what my potential probably was. Uh, because blowing your kneecaps out, um, contrary to popular opinion, does not help you become a better football player. So I highly don't recommend it to the listeners to, to rupture both your patella tendons. It, it makes life in general uh, rather difficult. But I'm doing pretty good, man. It, it's, uh, it, it's a battle some days. I think orthopedically we all have you know connective tissue and joint issues. L4 and L5 bother me. I've still got a rotator cuff. i got a torn PCL. My right knee, that's a two-plus tear that any time overextended, it bleeds and swells up a little bit. Those are the things that I think all of us manage, but diet and exercise, removing gluten and sugar from my diet the best that I can uh, certainly helps. I do a fair amount of yoga and try to keep my body limber and supple, if you can imagine that, in hot yoga, looking like a hairy lava lamp. You do not want to be behind me in a yoga class, I assure you of that. But uh, I think the thing that is a challenge for a lot of us is uh, some of the the cognitive stuff that I think a lot of guys are starting to experience. Uh, I've been pretty vocal about anxiety and depression and some of that stuff that I don't know if it's secondary to CTE or not or just being 45 years old. But there's some things that I think a lot of us are starting to experience that – uh, make day-to-day living a, a challenge and a battle, but certainly a battle that can be won and one that I'm winning. But I'm doing pretty good, man. I, I mean, how does life get better than what it is for me? I'm sitting here talking with you on a podcast, getting paid to talk about a game that I love that's meant a lot to me. Uh, things could be a hell of a lot worse in the Taylor household. <laughs> Excellent. Let's talk about your old school because Notre Dame's having a pretty nice year. I guess the first part about this is, do you think now we have reached a new level in Kelly's program? I guess what I'm saying is, like, you know, there was some inconsistency the first couple of years, a little up and down. I think what they feel like at Notre Dame, when you talk to some of the coaches there now, some of the people around the program, is that they've got a structure in place that will better allow them to sustain success. Now, 
I don't know if you're necessarily as close to the program as you used to be or any, but what is your sense of the structure of the program? Does he have a more sustainable model to sort of reach, not necessarily national championship level every year, but a sort of a higher level of sustained success? Well, we're certainly going to find out, aren't we? Um, (laughs) That's the thing that uh, I'm encouraged by is, is particularly the defensive side of the ball. We finally have some depth and talent up front that can rush the passer. We've always had some skilled players in the back end, linebackers you can find and and can play the game. But I think what is unquestionably the strength of this team and what's necessary uh, to be successful at any level, particularly the level that Notre Dame's at and the standard that they have of winning national championships, you got to be able to play defense. So Notre Dame's defense really, I think, is leading this charge on that side of the ball. And given the success that Mike Elko's had moving on to Texas A&M, and his replacement, Clark Lee, who got elevated from the linebacker position, uh, I think Todd Light's doing a fantastic job on the back end. Mike Elston up front with the defensive line. That staff and the players really seem to be a good group and talented and have the right hungry mindset. So those are the sorts of things institutionally and programmatically that I look at that have me encouraged. But there's still some inconsistency on the offensive side of the ball. Getting good, sustained quarterback play, a lot like coach kelly had back in cincinnati i still think is a little bit elusive the offensive line who was the best in the country a year ago and sent two players in the first nine picks on the nfl draft has been inconsistent this year they've had some younger players they've sustained some injuries that's made it all the more difficult so that running game is certainly something to keep an eye on this year for the iris which is ironic because that was the strength of the team last year but ian book and the quarterback management has kind of been the thorn in in brian kelly's side that position Ian Book has certainly sparked some life into this offense. So is Notre Dame back? I think it's early to say that. It's hard as hell to be 7-0, and and that's what they've done. So they should be given a lot of credit for that. But I think they still have some room to grow before they're a perennial top-10 team. I do like the trajectory of what I'm seeing. I do think they're headed back there. I do think it's taken longer than I think some people in Notre Dame thought going back to 2012 when they made that national championship experience and got the brakes beat off them against Alabama. But there's still some work to be done there, but I like what I'm seeing. I suspect, even though I know we talk a lot about, there's a lot, a lot of, you know, we like to project ahead and we look at Notre Dame's schedule and see some games that look very manageable. I suspect this offense might have a malfunction somewhere along the way. Uh, you're right. Listen, you, you replaced literally two of the best offensive linemen in the country last year. It seems like they've recruited well along the offensive line, but you just have some inexperienced guys, and they lost Alex Bars, which was a big loss. So I, I think at some point along the way here, they're going to lose one of these games they're expected to win. I, I, I just got a feeling that after seeing what happened against Pittsburgh and Vanderbilt, that there's enough sort of volatility in this offense to get themselves into a position where they get a scare that they can't get out of yeah no doubt man like Pitt is a dream record right I mean we've seen what they've done Miami (laughs) a number two team that they beat Clemson the year before it was a number two team and it almost happened in South Bend this weekend so I it's interesting man like watching that game I I knew it was going to be that sort of game going into it and I'm thinking to myself man you better stop jacking around and then of course you know Ian Book hits Miles Boykin have that nice drive kind of towards the end of the game and you can look at that one of two ways 
what you just laid out, which I think is very appropriate, that Notre Dame's offense might catch up with them, and, and particularly on the offensive line, their inability to run the football consistently and pass protect consistently is, I think, the thing to keep your eye on. But there's also a lot to be said about the maturity of that team and that they didn't panic and that they found a way to do what Miami the year before and Clemson the year two years prior were unable to do. So good teams find ways to win despite the fact that they showed up and maybe weren't as ready to play as they thought. Being undefeated, being a top-four team, now Notre Dame is going to get everybody's best shot tenfold uh, even though they, they would do that before. So that's what I'm saying. I think it remains to be seen whether or not Notre Dame is a type of a team that is ready for prime time. They're going to get tested. So Navy, I think, after a bye out in San Diego, Carter Blackburn and I and Rick Neuheisel will be on that call. It'll be fun to see them up close and personal and get to spend some meaningful time with the coaching staff. On the road against Northwestern, who's a scrappy team. Northwestern isn't good enough to win the national championship, but they're very good enough to keep you from doing so. They've got a good front seven, a couple good defensive ends. That's a game to keep your eye on. Florida State is woeful offensively. They're getting a little bit better, but they've got a defensive line that can create some havoc. That Syracuse team has proven that they can rush the passer and score in the points the way that they can. They've got a puncher's chance in any game. That's going to be potentially a cold-weather game in Yankee Stadium on the road. Brian Kelly has struggled in November. Notre Dame's remaining schedule is largely away from South Bend. They've got Florida State as their only true remaining home game, finally on the road against Southern Cal, against JT Daniels, who tends to play quite a bit better at home. The Trojans are really good at home uh, underneath their coaching staff there. So uh, I agree with you, man. I'm not saying the chances are greater than not that Notre Dame stumbles along the way, but if they do, I think it'll be offensively uh, that's the reason that they do so. Let me ask you, because I think the, the prevailing question in college football right now is, can anybody beat this Alabama team? It really goes beyond just, can anybody beat them? Because, you know, they could stub their toe. They've stubbed their toe once a year, every year for the last few years. Yep. But it's not just beating them. It's it's beating them in the right situation. It's keeping them out of the playoff. I don't know if I how much you've had a chance to really study this team it does seem like Tua has taken them to just a, a completely new level offensively where they're just they're they're stretching the field like never before. Does this team look like it's just that much better than everybody else and we're just all chasing Alabama? Man, it certainly appears so. I mean, what they're doing is unprecedented. I think I read a stat last week. I don't know if it held up uh, after this last weekend's games, but if you took the first half offensive production of Alabama, and added it up, it would have been top 20 in the country. <laughs> right. Stop and think about that for a second. What they've done in the first half is, is better than what 110-plus other teams do for the entire four quarters. It's crazy. They've had 500 yards of total offense for a record seventh game in a row. And they're playing third and fourth stringers in the fourth quarter. <laughs> it's, man, it's Gary, what Nick Saban and that staff has put together in Tuscaloosa, without question, the most explosive they've ever been offensively. And I think you got to credit Dan Enos as a quarterback whisperer and Mike Loxley as a play caller um, to, for all the success that Tua Tungabailoa has had. Now, the thing to watch, I think, about Alabama, Ralph, is the injury 
with Tua. Now, he says he's fine, but you've seen him come up a little bit gimpy. It's a long physical season in the Southeastern Conference, so that's something to definitely keep your eye on. Jalen Hurts is as good and serviceable as a backup as you could possibly have. The crowd loves him, and hats off to him for sticking around and not bouncing after being demoted for, for Tunga Bailoa like we've seen at a lot of other places. They've got a road game this weekend against an improved Tennessee team whose confidence is going to be sky high after their win last week on the road at night at LSU. Are you kidding me? That's where we're going to really learn about how good this Alabama team is. That's a defense that can get after the quarterback and maybe rattle them a little bit. And their back end has been suspect at time. There's been some challenges that they've had in terms of injury, playing some young players back there, a lot of new faces. When you look at the passing offenses remaining on the schedule, you don't really see anybody in Tennessee, LSU, Mississippi State, the Citadel, or Auburn that really scares you with your arm. But to your point, man, Alabama's biggest problem is going to be themselves, not Mm -hmm. showing up, taking somebody for granted, or making a few key mistakes on the road at night in Death Valley. Right. Are you as surprised as uh, I think a lot of people are about what's going on with LSU? I mean, they're still sort of lacking dynamic playmakers offensively, but they've found a winning formula. They've won a couple of close games, and I was shocked that they put it on Georgia the way they did. I mean, hats off to Ed Orgeron. Again, I'm I'm a little skeptical how, how this is going to play for the next half of the season and I could see them you know having a, obviously Alabama is going to be a tall order maybe even a misstep against the Texas A&M but boy they have fa- again found the right formula there in LSU I'm wondering if you're as surprised as maybe I am absolutely man I mean Joe Burrow has six touchdown passes right <laughs> I mean he completes 53 percent of his balls they are as pedestrian offensively as we've ever seen them in fact we've seen coaches get fired at that place because they were quote-unquote as woeful offensively is we're looking at LSU being right now. So Oh, the irony, Aaron. Oh, the irony. Yeah, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden, they're, they're the toast of the town looking exactly the same way they've looked in years past. They get a lot of credit for beating a Miami team that I think isn't nearly as strong as, as we thought at the outset. But there, there's no denying that this LSU Tiger team that is six and one is a team that believes in itself is finding ways to win. And there's something to be said about that, man. They are winning despite some of their deficiencies. A lot of other teams lose because of them. So I give this coaching staff and their approach and their mindset. I think they're a humble football team. They're extremely physical. I was watching the tapes. I wanted to take a look at Georgia's offensive line. Who's had a lot of injuries and young players playing themselves. That defensive line, man, they're as good with their hands as I've seen any defensive line in the country. 97, 90, all those cats play with extremely good pad level and leverage and just do a tremendous job of being able to press the line of scrimmage. They've got some wiggle in the pass rush. Uh, 40, Devin White is an unbelievably fast sideline to sideline, backside linebacker, uh, extremely active and all over the field. They use him in, in pass rushing situations, and he's effective of, at affecting the quarterback. Um, it's incredible, I think, what they've done. We're going to learn a lot about this LSU team as, as they match up pretty well this weekend with Mississippi State. They haven't seen a running quarterback yet, so I think we're going to learn all we need to know about the Tigers this weekend if they can get a win against Mississippi State. Yeah, you know, for all Mississippi State's issues, and some of the issues are similar. It's funny that they're a similar team in many ways to LSU. They've had similar issues in the passing game, but it hasn't burned them. They haven't been able to overcome them like LSU has. But I think those two teams match up pretty well, and it should be a pretty physical football game. 
Yep, and I agree. And that's why I think, you know, the SEC being a line of scrimmage league, that's the thing that's got me intrigued the most because Mississippi State in its own right has a pretty good offensive line. Their interior three are as good as there is in the conference. They're a physical bunch up on that side of the ball, and they've got consistency. They've started the same five linemen every week of the season. There's a lot of teams around the country that can't say that, and that continuity and that chemistry is hugely important. So Nick Fitzgerald, his ability to run the football in that defense is going to be the difference, and that's going to be one of the, the, the quieter matchups. I know it's high profile because LSU is ranked fifth in the country, but this Mississippi State team plays with a lot of heart. They're physical. They've got a good front seven and a defensive line that can be disruptive because, quite frankly, LSU on their offensive line up front, they're getting better but they're not a very good offensive line yet. There's things that you see that flash that you really like, but that's a heck of a matchup to watch that I think is a fair fight. Whoever ends up winning that fight that is very evenly matched will probably win the ball game. That's interesting, and maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up on this because you say LSU's got some issues on the offensive line, but they've been able to run the ball pretty effectively, especially last week against a Georgia team that you'd think you know, should do some pretty good things defensively, though I do think we probably underrated how much Georgia lost on the defensive side of the ball last year. I think sometimes you get a little starry-eyed with the fours and five-star replacements, but you sort of forget that like they had grown men, like seniors, on that defense last year that are not there this year. And it's not like the kids that they have now aren't talented, but they ain't Lorenzo Carter. These Those guys were grown men on the defense last year. But to spin it back, like what is LSU doing? I don't know how much you've had a chance to study them to sort of compensate, be able to run the ball effectively while still having some issues along the offensive line. I think the thing that they do the best, Ralph, is is they stay committed. They don't bail on it. And it's funny, man, that first big long run that they had, I was watching the tape last night trying to evaluate and make some last-minute decisions with the committee. We were going crazy last night with text messages and sending film clips via our iPhones and little different stuff, trying to take a look at it. There, there was a, that long run. I forget uh, what, what exact play it was, but it ended up getting them down inside the five-yard line. There's a defender from Georgia that is in the hole. It should have been a one-yard loss, maybe a one- or two-yard gain. The right tackle completely whiffs and oversets the, the defender that came underneath, immediately wheels and tries to turn around, the defender hits the back in the hole and bounces off, and it's off to the races. So because of that consistency and LSU making great plays, that play wasn't blocked very well, but because they're an opportunistic team, they turned what should have been a negative play into one of the biggest early plays in that ball game, and, and one of the reasons that they win. And they wear dudes out, man. Like when you get lathered up as an offensive line and stay committed and you start to see the defense put their hands on their hip you start to see them bitching at each other, going back and forth. There's certain things that we look for as offensive linemen where you know you've got them on your heels, and this coaching staff knows that. When the players come to the sideline, they tell them that, and they keep dialing up that run game and making people pay. So the consistency and the commitment to the run game, which is a dying art, LSU certainly does, and I think it's that second half, that third and fourth quarter run game that's really allowed them to to make up for an offense that isn't explosive seemingly whatsoever at times. Well, Aaron, between you and Cole, and last week I did a radio show with Jeff Schwartz uh, over on Sirius, (laughs) and I'm going to do another one with him later this week. 
I got offensive line covered. I, I told Jeff this week, you know, it's funny. I, I was doing a show with another host at ACC Radio on Sirius, and I was mentioning to him, Chris Patola, who you work with sometimes yep, too. Yep. I said, listen, Chris, we were having an old offensive lineman, and I can't I think a, a former Clemson offensive lineman as a guest. I was like, listen, man, uh, I've been around a lot of football teams. Offensive linemen are the most interesting guys on the team, and offensive line coaches are by far the most interesting coaches to talk to. And he's like, well, yeah, really? why is that? Like, what do you think? I'm like, well, listen, they don't want a lot of glory. They're usually pretty smart. They usually have a good idea of what everything else is going on because they sort of have to know what where everything else is and whatever, what is going on with other people. They can't just be self-centered. So I sold them. I was like, listen, man, offensive linemen, most interesting guys on the team, offensive line coaches, by far the most interesting coaches to talk to. I think part of it is because they're usually the biggest coaches, so they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily afraid of the head coach. So they're not, so it's, so not worried about speaking out of line. So I surrounded myself with some offensive linemen because I know you guys are the most interesting guys to talk to. Well, I appreciate you saying that, man. In football, there's some things that are, that are true and, and, the way that the the thing breaks down is that there's the D line, the O line, and the bus line. The reality <laughs> is, if we couldn't make it at the O line, we couldn't make it anywhere else. So we're happy as hell to be able to still be associated with this game. We weren't as athletic as the other players, but we compensate with that with a great attitude, a great work ethic, and uh, we're inherently team oriented people. You have to be somebody that is happy living in obscurity and anonymity. We thrive on that. There are three questions that Joe Moore used to ask. Are you willing? Are you tough? Can I trust you? If you check yes to all three of those boxes, you may be an offensive lineman in the waiting. Beautiful. Aaron Taylor from CBS Sports. He does a great job. Uh, he will be at um, in San Diego this weekend. San Diego State, San Jose State, correct? Yes, sir. Enjoy the weather there. I'm, I'm sure it will hold up this time. It very rarely does anything but uh, nice weather, though apparently you brought some bad weather last time you were there. Uh, good luck with the rest of the way with the Joe Moore Award, and uh, you know, have a great rest of the season, Aaron. Awesome, Ralph. Great to catch up, bud. And now, three and out. First down. The new transfer rules in the NCAA went into effect this week. From now on, schools cannot block an athlete from transferring or dictate where the athlete goes. Interesting note from the NCAA. If a player has already requested a release from scholarship to transfer under the old rules, which were in effect last week before October 15th, and received a list of schools that were made off limits by the coach, that player can resubmit a notification to transfer under the new rules and be allowed to pretty much go wherever he wants, though there might still be some restrictions when transferring within conference. Second down, as I made mention with Aaron, the AP released its mid-season All-America team as I'm recording this podcast, actually. I think it hit the wire. Alabama dominated the selections. Not big surprise there. They had four players on the offense, including Tua Tagovailoa and one defensive player on the first team. No other team had more than two players selected to the first team. Third down. I've talked a lot about how it's become pretty rare for coaches to move from Power 5 job to Power 5 job in recent years. It just doesn't happen nearly as much as fans like to hope it would happen when they fire their coach and start looking at the menu of who might be available. One Power 5 coach that I could see looking into some other jobs this offseason or this silly season, really, 
is Mike McIntyre of Colorado. I've heard the relationship between McIntyre and AD Rick George is not great. CU is always a tricky place to win consistently, and it looks like McIntyre is on his way to having another really good season. Don't be surprised if he tries to parlay that into another job, and if you see his name pop up when openings start coming up in late November. Though there might not be much available that's better than the job McIntyre already has. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.